Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations, book recommendation episodes, and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and endorse, and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. In 2023, I have a new segment on my Tuesday episodes called Read-Alike Requests. Listeners can submit a book they loved and tell me why they loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads. There is a Google form included in today's show notes if you would like to send in a request. If you love to read, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content, including bonus episodes and early reads with prepub author chats. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I am chatting with Colleen Oakley about the mostly true story of Tanner and Louise. Colleen is the USA Today bestselling author of The Invisible Husband of Frick Island, You Were There Too, and other unconventional love stories. Her books have been named Best Books by People Magazine, Us Weekly, Library Journal, and Real Simple, and long listed for the Pat Conroy Southern Book Prize. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome, Colleen. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to pieces that you are here because I absolutely loved the mostly true story of Tanner and Louise. I read it in the fall, and then I reviewed it this morning, and I literally almost got back through the entire book because there's just so many great things about it. It will be one of my favorite reads of 2023. Oh, that's music to my ears. That makes me so happy. Well, it's just delightful. So I can't wait to talk all about it. But before we do that, will you just give me a quick synopsis of the book for those that won't have read it yet? Yeah, absolutely. So the mostly true story of Tanner and Louise is about Louise, who is an 84-year-old woman who may or may not have perpetrated um, one of the largest jewelry heists in American history in the 1970s. 
And she has a caretaker, Tanner, who is a 21-year-old college dropout who would rather be doing anything than taking care of this geriatric, in her eyes, elderly woman. And one night, in the middle of the night, Louise shows up in Tanner's room with her bags packed, saying that they need to leave town immediately. And they end up on the lam from the police on a cross-country road trip. Um, And Tanner is trying to figure out who Louise actually really is. And they're slowly getting to know each other and understand each other better. Exactly. Which I loved. So you were partly inspired by your grandmother to write this one, correct? I was, yes. So my grandmother, who I was very, very close with, she passed away a few years ago at the age of 92. She and I were, I mean, best friends. I know people throw that around a lot, but we talked nearly every day. We bonded a lot over books. She was the person I went to for advice. She was wildly funny, quick-witted, sharp, um, just one of my favorite people all around. And we had just a special bond. And a few years before she died, she was diagnosed with late-stage Parkinson's. And I know you've had some experience with that, but for people who don't know, Parkinson's is, you know, just a really tragic, debilitating disease that, you know, really affects the brain health of, of the people who deal with it. And on top of the disease, all the concoction of medications that they use for the disease, it can create a lot of different side effects, a lot of hallucinations, a lot of dreams that just seem really real to the person experiencing them. So my grandmother dealt with all of those symptoms. And while she was dealing with Parkinson's, when I would be on the phone with her, she started to say some really kind of off the wall, outrageous things. For instance, one time she told me, to get her, oh she asked me if i had paid written a check to the new jersey gambling services for her and i said what for and she said well i have $10,000 in gambling debts which was not true <laughs> um and then one time my aunt went to visit her and she said wendy which was my aunt's name she said wendy you're out of jail and wendy said what mom and she said <laughs> you're out of jail you know you killed that man and they let you out of jail And so these were all things that my grandmother, you know, would have found absolutely hilarious because she had an amazing sense of humor. And so as a family, we started sharing all of these, you know, kind of strange stories as a way to laugh and kind of deal with our grief about what was going on. And my novelist brain just started, the wheels started turning. And I just thought, what if any one of these things that my grandmother was saying was actually true? You know, what if she had lived kind of this other life that we didn't know about. And it was all just starting to come out toward the end of her life. And that's when I got the idea for Louise, who, you know, possibly had been a jewelry thief at some point in her younger life. And it was, it's just starting to catch up with her in her older days. I was familiar with some of the symptoms of Parkinson's because my grandfather had had it, but we didn't live very close to him. I wasn't around him all the time. So I knew about the shaking and the trembling and the gait being affected. But I was not familiar with the hallucinations until my dad was experiencing them. And the doctor said, yes, it's a side effect of Parkinson's and a side effect of the medicines. And some of them were just crazy, like men chasing him down the hall of his retirement community and a variety of other things that sometimes I would initially be panicked. And then I'd be like, wait a minute, that is not possible that that happened. So it is one of those things that, you know, you just don't always know until you're in the midst of it all. Right, exactly. 
Exactly. Well, what kind of research did you have to do for this one? Well, a lot of it obviously centered around some of it Parkinson's. A lot of that was, you know, firsthand experience of of what my grandmother was dealing with. But then I really got to go deep into jewelry heists and FBI and police work. I got to interview a couple different people who had been on the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, I also talked to quite a few lawyers because I was dealing with many different people who broke the law and <laughs> what that would entail and what it looked like and what you know things would look like from the FBI angle of, of trying to chase down people who may have perpetuated a crime. It was great fun. I bet it was great fun. Do you ever have them read it afterwards or any sections afterwards, or do you do your research and then just figure you've got it as close to right as you're going to and you go ahead and write it? For the very technical things, I do have people read over it just to make sure that I didn't get anything wrong. Or if I did get something wrong, that it was you know done on purpose for, for the purpose of the story. And I always write that in my author's note that sometimes you know I bend the rules a bit just for the, <laughs> the purpose of the fictitious story to keep it moving. To propel it along. Sure. Well, with absolutely no spoilers, there are so many fun twists and turns. Did you plot it all out ahead of time or do you just write as you go? I write as I go, which makes it wildly challenging. (laughs) You know, writing is hard no matter what you do. If you plot it out, if you if you pants it, if you write it as you go. For me, it's the only way that it works because if I plot it out from beginning to end, then I don't have the urgency to write the story, I find, because I know what happens. So it's not exciting to me. I want it to be exciting as I'm writing it. And I like being surprised just as much as I like surprising the reader. So it's fun for me when I come up with those twists kind of on the fly. Well, I love the ending. And again, I'm not going to say anything more than that. But that's amazing to me that you didn't have to plot any of that out. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I say that it's funny because while I'm, I don't plot it out from beginning to end. A lot of writers will sit down and write an outline, you know, as you know, from beginning to end. I always know where I'm starting and where I'm going to end up. And I just have no idea how I'm going to get there. But of course, while I'm drafting and while I'm writing, I do jot notes, things start, plot lines start to untangle. And so it's kind of a little bit of outlining as I'm in the midst of it. You know, I'll outline the next couple chapters and know kind of where I'm going. That makes sense. I just was so fascinated because I was like, okay, there's a lot to put together here. Yeah. And, and you know, because of that, there's a lot of editing that has to be done because sometimes a, a plot twist that I'll throw in there on the fly will mess up, you know, the five chapters previously and I'll have to drop hints and foreshadowing. And so it's a, it's a process. Absolutely. And as you said, writing always takes a lot of work. And I think it just really depends on where in the process the most work is done. If you outline ahead of time, you kind of spend a ton of time getting that done and maybe the writing goes smoother. But if you are pantsing it or plotting a couple of chapters ahead, then you're just spending more time as you're writing, figuring everything out. So, I mean, the time's there. It's just where it's devoted. Exactly. The work is the work. Exactly. (laughs) Whatever works for you. (laughs) Exactly. Whatever works for you to get this outstanding book is what you should do. (laughs) You address many important themes in this book, aging, society's dismissal of older people, family dynamics, intergenerational relationships, the choices we make, and more. Yep. (laughs) So was there one in particular that was the most important to you or that you started with or 
How did you weave them all in? I would say there were two that were most important to me. The the first being the intergenerational relationships, because I mean, at its core, this book is a love letter to my grandmother. You know, I was writing it while I was in the midst of full on grieving her death. And in a way, it was just so cathartic because it let me, Louise, the main character was, of course, inspired by her. And so it let me feel like I was close to her. I was able to drop in some little Easter eggs, some little personality characteristics that were so endearing about my grandmother. And so I just, you know, it was just really, really a catharsis writing this. And then the second theme that I would say is most important to me is really the theme about what it means to be a woman in this world, in the modern world, and, you know, 50 years ago, what it meant to be a woman and kind of the dichotomy of those two things, how far we have come as women, have we come far enough, in what ways have we gone backwards, maybe a little bit. And so I think it was, it was really, I enjoyed exploring that in the book. And I know I saw somewhere that you used Thelma and Louise as a little bit of a model to kind of jumpstart the story. I did. Yeah. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. One of my favorite female power movies of all time. And I think, you know, it's one of those movies that I saw for the first time when I was probably 14 or 15, when I didn't really understand everything necessarily that women had to face or the obstacles that we had to face in our society. I just knew that I was angry a lot of the time, that things seemed really unfair. And that movie, I remember just feeling validated in my anger, like, oh, like, yeah, women are mad. And and it just was such a validation to me. And I still didn't completely understand it. But I just remember loving that movie so much because it just resonated with a lot of the things I was feeling as an angsty teenage girl. I hate to admit this, but I've never seen it. Oh my gosh, Sydney! <laughs> I know, isn't that awful? I was like, should I admit it or should I not? <laughs> oh, I'm giving you homework. You have to watch that movie. I know. And I really like the actresses in it. I don't know why I've never seen it. And I will say it's one of those that just really holds up. I watched it, you know, again, of course, as part of the research for the book. And it just completely held up for me. It's so good. That is good to know because some of those 1980s movies that I loved when I was a teen, I've tried to watch with my kids and I'm like, oh my gosh, these movies don't hold up at all. I know. And they're like really cringy a lot of times. Yes. And are addressing things that I'm like, why did I think these were okay when I watched them originally? But I think it's society. And so at least you feel like some things have changed. Not nearly enough, but I'm like, okay, at least we don't think these things are all right now. (laughs) That's so true. So it's good to know it holds up. Well, you infuse so much humor into this book. That is one of the things that I love in a story where it's tackling important topics and it's so enjoyable to read, but it's also just so darn funny. Are you funny in real life? Well, I like to think I am. My husband likes to remind me that I'm not as funny as I think I am (laughs) to everybody. (laughs) But yeah, you know, I just, I think that laughter is one of the greatest gifts in life, not to be too cliche about it. And that's, Really, and in my family, that's how we deal with things. You know, like what my grandmother was going through, we laughed our way through that. When my grandfather passed, I remember sitting around after his funeral and we just told stories about him until we were all laughing so hard, tears were coming down our face. I just think that laughter really is the best medicine. And if I can put a little more humor and fun out into the world, then my job is done. I'm happy to do it. (laughs) 
I agree with that completely. I think laughter can turn a mood around. I think it can help when you are dealing with a loss. I think it's just a great way to deal with things, whether they're harder things or easier things. It just is such a release. Yep. And Louise is really funny, and it sounds like your grandmother was as well. She was too. And I really do hope, you know, that I just infuse that book with a lot of my grandmother's humor because Louise's humor is my grandmother's very dry, deadpan, quick witted (laughs) humor. So I have my grandma to thank for that. It worked. She's delightful. And then the other thing that I thought was so funny was the interactions of her three children. Like when you have them in these transcripts of their phone conversations or their FBI interviews. I mean, I was literally rolling like family dynamics. It was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm the youngest of three. And so I had a lot of material to work with. (laughs) So, you know, just when like when Louise first disappears, which is no spoiler, because that's, you know, you know, they're going on a road trip and the, the kids are going back and forth. And then the youngest is has all this information. She doesn't know the older two don't have. There's just so much happening. And it was just really very entertaining. That's interesting that you are the youngest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that you toggled between Tanner and Louise's perspectives, in addition to throwing in some of the other things we were talking about. Did you enjoy writing one of them more than the other? You know, generally, when I do uh, two or three different perspectives in a book, there is one that I enjoy writing more. I think I equally enjoyed Tanner and Louise because Louise, obviously, because I was able to feel like I was with my grandmother, which was wonderful. But Tanner, it really let me kind of relive a lot of those coming of age feelings and experiences that I haven't necessarily mined for a book yet. And so I just really enjoyed kind of living in her headspace for a little bit while I was writing her. And I like the way her character developed because you know she's angry from the very beginning. And you know something's happened, but you don't know exactly what. And I like the way that all unfolded. And then I went to Northwestern, so I loved the inclusion of Northwestern. Oh, you did? Oh, my gosh. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. What a good school. It's so funny because it shows up in so many books. It's one of those things. And I used to think, well, maybe I'm noticing it because I went there. But I feel like it just pops up again and again. I don't know if it's because of its location in Chicago or what. Yeah, I don't know. And it's so funny. I couldn't really tell you why I picked it, except... I have a cousin who went there and I knew that I could get some of the details that I needed to make it realistic that Tanner was there. Absolutely. Well, what was the highlight of writing the book? Oh, the highlight of writing the book. I think, you know, not to repeat myself, but I think that it really was, it was to work out my grief and made me feel so much closer to my grandmother. And now letting, um, obviously I've let a lot of my family members read the advanced copies that we have. And that has been the greatest joy because they see my grandmother in the book. And though my grandmother is not here to read the book, she was my greatest fan. And I wish more than anything that this is the book she could have read. It's nice to get that feedback from my family that, you know, they all say that she would have loved it and, and they love it. And it's just a really good feeling. That was going to be my next question, whether you shared it with your family and if they saw your grandmother and Louise. Yep. Yep, they really do. And they all, um, you know, they can see every single Easter egg I put in there. And so they've all gotten some really good chuckles and some memories from it. I bet. And that's really neat because it's stuff you can include in the book. An ordinary reader like me wouldn't necessarily see that. But somebody that knew your grandmother is like, oh, that's exactly what she used to do. Right, exactly. What about what you want readers to take away from the book? You know, I think the thing that I most want them to take away, first of all, is it's just 
fun fiction. I want it to be a good escape from all of the terrible things that are going on in the world right now. Um, And I just hope they have a good ride along with Tanner and Louise. And then the second thing, if they take anything else away from the book, is that maybe they'll take a look at the older people in their lives, whether it's a grandmother, you know, a great aunt, a neighbor, and just take more time to connect with those people and understand that they probably have a lot more to offer and a lot more stories to tell about their lives than you could ever imagine. I think far too often we write off older people in our society way more often than we should. And I think if we took time to connect with them, we would all be better for it. I feel like that's almost becoming a subgenre because I love these type of stories, the intergenerational relationships, and there seem to be more of them, or maybe I'm just finding them. But I love that because I do think it's important. And I do think older people kind of get shunted to the side sometimes and have a lot more to offer. And I love that that's becoming something that is focused on more, or at least I'm seeing it more. I agree. I completely agree. Well, what about the title and the cover? How did those come about? So the title I came up with, titles are one of my favorite things. I know a lot of writers struggle with their titles, but for me, it could be from my magazine days. I used to be a magazine editor and had to come up with headlines all the time, but I really, really love coming up with titles. In fact, when I'm working on a book, if I haven't nailed down the title, it's just not a real book for me yet. So the title is one of the things I come up with very shortly after I come up with the concept. So I've had this title for a long time and I just love it. I think it's really fun. I think you wonder what's true and what's not (laughs) from the mostly true story. I just think it's a fun title. And then the cover, I just have an incredible art team at Berkeley who, if you look at all of the Berkeley titles, they have been crushing covers lately. I just think they're so talented. And this was actually the first cover that they showed me, which is also completely rare, but they nailed it. As soon as I saw it, I gasped. They just nailed it. I think it's fabulous. And I agree. Berkeley's covers are some of the best. They just do such a phenomenal job. They really do. They Every Berkeley cover that I've seen, um, and there's ones coming out this year that just kind of take my breath away. They're just so creative and interesting, and they do a bang-up job. I agree. And I like the title because once I have it down, it's unique. And so then it's just so much easier to remember than sometimes four or five regular words strung together. And I have to be like, what order do they come in? Which words is it? <laughs> so this is great because I'm like, okay, I've got it down. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though, sometimes where it's just kind of everyday words and then you're like, what order are they in and how does it go and which words are they? And sometimes it's hard for me to get it all down. Absolutely. And I do hope that I try to keep my titles unique for that reason so that they're memorable, hopefully. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, my gosh. I've been on a reading tear this new year. I don't know what's gotten into me. I always read. I read every night, but I've just been. (laughs) rushing through a lot of books. It's been so great. Um, A few that I've loved coming out in February. I don't know if you've had a chance to read this one, The Woman with the Cure by Lynn Cullen. It's up soon for me. I was just thinking, you know, I'm the same way. I've been reading like crazy, but there are so many books coming out that I feel like I am just never going to get caught up, but I've heard it's really good. It is phenomenal. And I've loved everything that she's written, but I really think it's her best book yet. It's about the race for polio. And this female scientist named Dorothy, I can't remember her last name, who was instrumental in finding the cure. But of course, 
we never hear about her. We always hear about Jonah Salk. So this is one of those, you know, hidden women in history, uh, historical fiction stories. And it is so good. Okay, I'll bump it up the list. Okay, good. (laughs) And then another book that I loved, I read over the holiday break is The Violin Conspiracy by Brendan Slocum. I loved it, loved it, loved it. So about a world famous black violinist who loses um, a multi-million dollar violin. It's stolen from him. And so it's part mystery about, you know, who stole it and why and how he's going to get it back. And it's also um, an exploration of racism in the classical music world and the obstacles that this violinist has to face. It's really well done. And he has a new one coming out, I think in May or June. He does. And I cannot wait. I can't remember the title of it, but I cannot wait to read it. He's an excellent writer. Absolutely. And then one more to sum it up with three books. I am in the middle of Just the Nicest Couple by Mary Kubica. And her books just keep me up. Like I started it last night. I know I will finish it tonight. I just tear through them. I always have to know what happens. She was one of my early reads for Patreon, like your book is going to be. And we talked about it actually in November because we took December off. So even though the book came out in January, we went ahead and met with her in November. And that book was a huge hit. There were a lot of twists and turns in that one as well. She is just so talented. She can do no wrong in my eyes. I love every single one of her books that she's written. Yes. So we had a lot of fun talking about that one. And she just hit the New York Times. Yes, she did. I was so excited for her. Yeah, that was awesome. Well, Colleen, thank you so much. As I have said over and over, I absolutely loved this book. And I'm so glad we got to talk more about it. And I appreciate your taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Cindy. Great to chat with you. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult 
struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.